Welcome, everybody, to the Weapons of Mass Disruption with Dr. Tamara Schwartz. Today, I'm going to be talking with my good friend, Major Ben Brooks, about what does it mean to serve and protect? What does it mean to police a community? And what is it like to be part of a policed community? We understand the importance of the rule of law and the concept of justice, but we're unclear exactly what that means because justice is a lot, it's a very subjective concept. So law enforcement is wholly lost in the wilderness of Mount Vuka right now as our society wrestles with these questions. Today I'm going to be talking with a retired Pennsylvania State Trooper, Major Ben Brooks, um, to, and we're going to be exploring how technology, information warfare, and brain science might provide us new insights related to both officer safety and community safety. And we'll start that conversation in just a moment. Ben, welcome to WMD. I am. We've been talking about doing this for a while now. Glad to have you. <laughs> So why don't you tell why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself because you have a really interesting background and I'd like them to hear it. Yeah. Well, I spent 30 and a half years in the Pennsylvania State Police. I came in very interestingly enough in 1961 as one of the first African Americans to enlist in the Pennsylvania State Police. And I rose uh, to, uh, to the ranks uh, to the rank of, of, of major. Eventually, I started out as a trooper in Reading, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, and worked at, at the patrol and crime for a while there. In 1967, 68, I was a member of the uh, group that formed the Pennsylvania Crime Commission, which is now PCCD. You know, uh, we did a lot of work there. I came back, did a lot of other uh, investigations, and I went to uh, to Corporal and went to Embryville, Pennsylvania. I was there for two years and um, learned to sergeant, went to Avondale for a couple of years. And from there, a couple of years, I went to Philadelphia as a staff lieutenant in 1980, uh, during which time I uh, attended the FBI National Academy and graduated from there. And in 1982, I was named the first African-American captain and at the same time assigned as a troop commander up in Bethlehem, which included Lehigh, Northampton, and Bucks Counties. In 1987, when Governor Casey came into office, uh, my good friend John Schaefer and Ryan Sharp were the commissioner and deputy, and I was transferred to Harrisburg, and I took over the affirmative action contract compliance function, and it was the first time that an enlisted person held that position. And in that position, I developed sexual harassment policies and procedures as well as training. Also involved in the interagency task force, dealing with affirmative action, diversity, and connected with hate crimes as we talked to police and, and corrections officers throughout Pennsylvania. In 1992, then I retired and I started my own business, major event consulting, continuing work with the sexual harassment prevention, uh, diversity, and inclusion. Uh, and we did a lot now dealing with unconscious bias. And so that takes me right to where I am, am today to be looking at working with law enforcement now, trying to set the record straight and to talk about how we bring humanity to law enforcement and, and you know, in order to have a much more effective uh, police uh, force in the country. Right. So it's important for our listeners to understand, uh, number one, that you were in policing for you've been in policing for a very long time. And you were you were one of the groundbreaking trailblazers for what it meant to not be a white police officer. Yes. And so you have you have the perspective of both what it's like to worry about officer safety and what it's like to be a person of color when we are at a time that driving while black can be dangerous. 
Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And you also have a thirst for learning. The one thing that I have picked up about you, Ben, is that you are a continuous learner in, in to the nth degree, which is part of why we why we uh, connected so quickly, right? <laughs> It's just interesting if you if you happen to call my phone uh, and uh, my greetings there, uh, and I, I end with, uh, as my good friend, the late Charlie Tremendous Jones says, you will be the same as you are today five years from now, except for two things, the people you meet and the books you read, and you read not to be smart, but to be real. Uh, so this thirst for knowledge uh, has really, really, really taken off for me because as I look at law enforcement right now, there's a lot that we don't have that we need. And so having a background in law enforcement, it behooves me then to do training to really talk about how best to connect officers with the reality of what's happening out there. Because officer safety is at the top of my list, you know, to make sure that they are equipped with the right information as well as the equipment. As we talk about this uh, disinformation society, there's a lot of bad information going on out there right now. And it's important for officers to have the real scoop. I, I, I say to them, let your conclusion be the result of your own investigation as opposed to listening to the echo chambers, you know, so that, so that whole thirst for knowledge uh, is just an insatiable appetite uh, to find ways to better connect with the, with the officers. And so that kind of brings us to how you and I met. And I love that you, the, the concept of information and how do we have the right information and where do we get the right information? So the way Ben and I, became acquainted was I did a, a webinar with a, a mutual friend of ours, Dr. James Smith Jr. Hey, James, we, ho- we don't know if you're listening, but <laughs> if you are, shout out to you. Um, we met because I did a, a talk on information warfare and some of what we are learning about how the constant immersion in information warfare is impacting our experiences as people. And when Ben was listening to me talk about these things, he immediately saw a connection to the things that he's wrestling with in, in the, the law enforcement community. Um, but before we get to the present day, um, I thought it would be good to start with some of the foundational things that I learned from you, Ben, where we talk, one of the most important things I think is the history of policing. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I think in order to clearly understand the function of the police, we have to go back to its origins. And, and think of it, how did, how did it, it started as slave patrols. And these individuals were, they were deputized. There, there was no formal education, no rules, regulation. All they were uh, asked to do is to f- track down uh, runaway slaves and, and bring them back. And there were so many horror stories about the, the kind of uh, treatment that both of us did. And that became very, very problematic. And so as we look today at law enforcement, as a lot of what has, has evolved, you know, a lot has happened. And, and, and I'm watching uh, things happen right now. And it kind of harkens back to, to that time. In the, in, the, in the meantime, you know, there has been a seismic shift in terms of uh, getting some form of education. You know, like, for example, when I was with the Crime Commission, we did a lot of studies of, of the whole criminal justice system, police corrections and all that. And what we found back in 1968, in Pennsylvania, for example, the uh, average uh, uh, education level of a chief of police was eighth grade. 
you know, so a lot is happening. And so as we look at the function now, because we started off being law enforcement, which meant that there was a lot of emphasis on putting folks in jail, you know, and that was, that was important. I call it the Rambo effect. But what we find right now, it's about 1% of what we do. Uh, back in, in the 60s, all of a sudden, we started talking about community-oriented policing, which began to change how we saw uh, the whole thing, being able to find ways to connect with community in a, in a perspective of rather than enforcement, being able to come together as a collaborative to be able to find ways to work together to deal with the crime issue. So, so was a mistake, a notion. Wayne, can I jump in here for just a second? Go ahead. Um, yeah. So, so in the South, it was it, policing started as slave patrols, and in the North, yeah. it's it was policing was about um, protecting goods being shipped into ports. And so, I think in the case both property. both the North and the South, the thing that's important to pay attention to is the intersection of capitalism and law enforcement. Because the reason that we needed to enforce laws and protect property was so that those people who had power could hang on to their economic power. And, and I think that's an important piece of the conversation because all of this information warfare stuff is also linked to the retention of power and economic power. So when we get into the 60s, like you just started to talk about, where this idea of community policing emerged, that is fundamentally a different perspective than protecting property and power for the wealthy. Yeah, and I think if we go back, I think in Boston, where one of the first groups started, and again, what they were doing, they were protecting goods and, and, and property. So when we hear the term protect and serve, it was an appropriate term because you are protecting the interests of the politicians and, you, and, and those are the people that, that, that you were serving. Uh, again, if you look at the many of the people who were protecting and serving, again, there, there was no education that they're all, you know, they just had to be people who were big brutes and who were able to do, to carry out the, the, the function there. And they did a, a massive job. Now, what is interesting here is that that job was relegated to people who were of questionable character. You know, there were folks who were alcoholics or whatever, you know, and you, you know, all you had to do was just be loyal to the people that, that you were protecting. So, and that that became very, very uh, interesting as we, as we looked at that. So what were some of the challenges that you faced when you first became a state trooper? Because you were one of the first black men to become a police officer, a straight, a state trooper. Yeah. Uh, one of the biggest challenges is to uh, deal with people who, who, in their novel environment, you know, have never seen anything like this before. Right. And of course, if you you think about the, the unconscious bias that kicks in, because uh, people look at you and they begin to judge you not on the basis of who you are, but what they may have perceived you to be. And of course, it was a, a, a huge learning um, process for, for, for many people. Uh, yeah. So again, you know, again, going back to that concept of power, police officers have power. Black people do yeah. not have power. What do I do with a black person who has become yeah. a police officer? Yeah. Because now I have this this um, cognitive dissonance related to who's supposed to yeah. have power. Yeah, and 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 you're in a situation where people feel that you stop them, and you know, well, who are you? You know, try to arrest me, and and of course, I had a distinct advantage, you know, because of my height. Uh, during that time, we we wore the, the, the riding boots, 
and the, and the campaign hats and stuff. You know, I'm like six two, but when I get out of the car, I look like about six seven or six eight. You know, so <laughs> that that psychologically that um, knocked out a lot of that, a lot of that stuff. You know, but there were a lot of uh, nuanced stuff that, that that occurred because people were not accustomed to seeing anybody uh, like me. I remember uh, we <laughs> when I was at Avondale, uh, for example, we had a, an old lady there. I can't think of her name right now, but uh, uh, she would call for an incident, and when when a, a black trooper would show up, you know, she would call back and she said, "I don't, want, you know, I don't want any black troopers coming to my house," you know. And so we got to the point where now, when we would, something would, she would call, we would all they would always send somebody who was an African American there because the idea here people have to get used to the fact that this is not business as usual, you know. Um, and you know, and and you think about the things that happen. I remember as we talk about this business. You find yourself as a, as a state trooper, as you were the highest law enforcement officer in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And I remember I was working in detail up in Carbon County with with the PennDOT crew, and we stopped on a rural road uh, in in one uh, hot summer in the July of of, of sixty four, I think it was. And in front of a house, where a lady was sitting on the steps with her son. So I walked over and I asked, you know, if I could have a glass of water, you know. So the lady, she said, "Go get it." So the son came in and brought the water. And I, uh, I drank the water, and I, I passed the glass back to them, and I thanked them, you know, for being so gracious. I turned to walk to my car, and I had gone no more than three steps when I heard the unmistakable sound of breaking glass. And I stopped, and I froze, and like, well, and then it dawned on me, you know, that glass that had just touched my lips would never touch the lips of another human being, you know, and it was like it was, it was like a, a, a kind of humbling experience. You know, I was humbled by the sound of breaking glass. And, and I said that was one of the few situations where there was such obvious um, disdain, if you will, you know, that, 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 that you, wouldn't, you would not ex- expect that it happened. But you know, we began to realize that that was, that was part of life. But for the, for, the most, for the most part, you know, uh, I, didn't, I didn't have many of those uh, instances mm-hmm. to deal with, you know. So that now that we've talked about the past and, and, and how we got somewhere along the line, because I, I grew up on the on the officer friendly campaign, mm-hmm. right? I grew up on the days of officer friendly where police officers are the people you trust and you can go to a police officer. And, and maybe that's because I'm white. Maybe that's why I was raised on that. But I, I feel like that was a message that was all over all over the television at the time when I was a child. Mm-hmm. And yes. And so there, there are a lot of people choose policing because they want to help people. I mean, presumably that's why you chose to become a police officer because you wanted to yes. make the world yes. a better place and you wanted to serve the community. And, and so somewhere along the line, we've gone from, it, it must be really hard, I think, to, to want to serve people, to want to um, help people and give back to your community and because of what's going on in the in the world today, that's not necessarily the way people are perceived if they choose this this career path. So, what are some of the challenges that are facing police officers today? Well, I think I think today uh, the biggest issue really is misinformation. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, I yeah, I came in because I wanted to help. One of the most important functions that I had in that process that I spent one summer 
dealing with Head Start children. And I doubled those kids up there and it was just amazing to watch their little faces as they started to have a personal relationship uh, with, with the officers there. That's the, that's the, that's the, that was kind of the predicate for me to be, realize that the more of a humanity we can present to people, the easier it's going to be to make that, that connection. Right now, as we, as we talk about law enforcement, law enforcement right now is on the defenses and, and, and rightfully so, uh, because we don't have people out there who are saying, oh, wait a minute, you have more power than anybody in society. The idea right now is that we really have to begin to reach out to the communities to begin to uh, ensure, you know, that they become allies as opposed to uh, opponents. And so right now, uh, to deal with community-oriented policing and, and those kinds of issues to me are very important. I'm working with the school police and right now, and we'll find ways to have the connection with the police and the students, the police in the community, because that's going to be the salvation of, of, of where we are. And it has to start with, with, with uh, administrators who need to look at law enforcement in a whole different perspective. To recognize right now that we're, it is a, a relationship business. And the better relationship you have with the community, easy, easy it is for us to do the things that we need, need to do. And being able to address the misinformation and the disinformation is so critical in that process. So, Ben, I really want to pull on this community thread in, in just a minute, but we need to take a quick break and have a word from our sponsor, and then we will pick, pick up with this conversation. Brought to you by CyberCon IQ a patent-pending cybersecurity awareness learning platform that is based on behavioral science. CyberCon IQ understands that every individual's learning journey is different, so why should everyone receive the same training program? At the heart of the CyberCon IQ solution is a personal style assessment. By first understanding the workplace persona of each individual in an organization, CyberCon IQ then delivers a personally curated cybersecurity education that teaches employees to recognize the cyber threats they are most susceptible to. Visit CyberConIQ.com for more information on this revolutionary learning platform. So, Ben, we're talking about this relationship between the police and the community. And I think this is kind of where I want to start to introduce these concepts that we were learning about in information warfare, beginning with the concept of in-groups and out-groups. Because what has happened with the, the launch of the Internet and the launch of social media and the access to information and misinformation and massaged information, shall we call it, has been to cement these in-groups and out-groups through, through the echo chamber effect, through um, choosing which, which truth you're going to believe, and, and those mm-hmm. sorts of things. And, and because one of the things we know about in-groups and out-groups is that as those groups become more powerful that 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 idea becomes more powerful not necessarily mm-hmm. that the outgroup becomes more powerful but your perception of them as an outgroup becomes more powerful it becomes very easy to dehumanize one another and so if police are an in-group 
and the police community is an out group or the police community is an in group and the police are an out group, it becomes very hard to, um, to find solutions that will make it, will, will, will alleviate the pain for both because part of the, part of the desire becomes to hurt the out group. Whatever, whoever your out group is, whether you're my out group or my in group, whether uh, other women are my in group or out group, whether people from another country are my in group or out group, it just it, it makes it easier for us to hurt one another when we put everybody in our out group. And so that that was sort of I think what what in my presentation sort of resonated with you and this this how do we get there. Um so, so let's start with how technology impacted policing. All of this access to the smartphone, right? Yes. Yeah. Police interactions in the past were largely only visible to police and the people who were arrested. Yes. And that's not the case anymore, right? I mean, anybody with a smartphone can, can film a video, and but the power of technology is that we can tailor the video to present a story. And I know story mm-hmm. is your favorite word to, to, I mean, if I give you the word story, yeah. you can go with that for hours. If I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so what are some of the stories that are going on out there, both on the police, on the side of the police and on the side of the communities being policed? Well, let, let me start, let me start by saying that technology uh, has been a blessing. And it's also been a curse. As with so many things. Uh, it's, it's, it's been a curse because of the improper use of technology. The blessing is, is that, take like, like the smartphone, for example. When someone is able to videotape a, an incident, you have real-time information and first-hand information. Think about uh, the Aubrey case in Atlanta. If there had been no video, there would have been no charge and no conviction. Right. But it's there. Now, what is the upside of technology and videos? When we find ourselves, police has always, have always been in charge and they've dictated the terms. When technology came about and all of a sudden there was public scrutiny of our actions, we became very defensive. And the moment you become defensive, hearing stress down, nothing happens. And all of a sudden, there is a wall that's set up. And so we begin to see technology then as a problem. My take on that is to, if we see something as a problem, this wall set up. And I think rather than see it as a problem, as an opportunity, what's that opportunity? If what they're videotaping is the kind of aberrant behavior that is antithetical to what our mission, vision, and values are all about, then it behooves us then to make a seismic shift to ensure that the right information, training, and education is at the forefront, you know, because it begins to negate the negativity that arises from those uh, videotapes of the aberrant behavior, you know, and becomes very important for us uh, to, to, to do that. So it means that uh, law enforcement then has to take a very pragmatic view 
and think about how we have to significantly change the way we do business because the public is saying to us, so we, and the story that we have is that there's an incident where, you know, uh, people are protesting and, and law enforcement receive people are they're protesting because they don't like the police and if they don't like the police. This is, this is what they do. And this is the story we have in our head. And that story drives the particular behavior that you see in this, on, on the streets out there. You know, like for example, when, when folks will, will, will say things like, uh, well, you know, people want to, uh, defund the police, you know, and that takes off and everybody's to all day. They're going to get rid of the police. Was No, that's not what they're saying. What has to happen then is when we listen, listen with the third ear, and that means for what's not being said. Defunding the police is a metaphor for us to say, stop for a moment, you need to take a look at what's happening here so that we can begin to look at some substantive changes you know, to get us to where we really need to be. Because if we, if we allow that story to be they want to get rid of the police, then all our behavior is going to be directed that way. However, when it's explained to them, no, 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 no. We don't want to get rid of the police. We want them to be reformed in the sense that many calls that you go on, should you shouldn't have to do that. There's another entity that can do that, which frees you up to do those police things that, that you talk about. So what does that do? It begins to change the story. Once we begin to, once we change the story, then our behavior is going to be consistent with that change, which means then that there is a more co- coalescing around the community as a cooperative as as opposed to an opposition. And and that concept of story is it, that is the heart of information warfare. It's my yes. story yes. versus somebody else's story. And so from that, we get into this next layer of discussion on information warfare. And, and we're going to get in a little bit more on technology, but we're going to have to save that for the next episode. So for our listeners, okay. Okay. we invite okay. you to join us on our next episode where Ben and I continue our conversation. Um, but as we've said... Law enforcement is firmly out there on Mount Vuka, and they are in their canoe. So we need them to get out, lace up their boots, and use their paddle as a walking stick. We'll listen to you next time on WMD. WMD, Weapons of Mass Disruption, is produced by me, Chris Perez, and all rights reserved to Dr. Tamara Schwartz. You may access this podcast free of charge on any of your preferred platforms or by visiting us at lomride.com. That is L-L-A-M-R-A-I dot com.